Bible tonight. You can use the one in the pew in front of you. Philippians chapter 2. Philippians chapter 2. The gospel won't be proclaimed as it should from a church unless and until we are willing to actually forget ourselves. We desperately need to realize that our lives as part of the church of Jesus Christ are not wrapped up in what we do. Stand still, beloved, and consider the wondrous works of God. And ask if those things that are so important to you are actually what God has given you to do or are they what you want to do and we use God's name as support. Ask if your Christianity is more about you feeling validated for your efforts and your time and contributions or of denying yourself so that Christ and Christ alone might be proclaimed and exalted. God created us new as children of light. We actually hear that term in Ephesians 5.8. But here Paul tells us that we shine as lights in the world. We have a gospel to proclaim. The only thing that makes our feet beautiful for the world is the gospel we preach. Nothing else. And the gospel that is the gospel. The message of the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of sins and the salvation of sinners. That's the gospel. However, if we cannot or if we refuse to get rid of our self-absorption and our selfishness, our light will be too dim to make any difference. So let us work because we've been made new by God in Christ to be bright lights who make a difference. Since Christ has come to serve us forever in the gospel. And it's to this call that Paul now turns in the second half of chapter 2. Pray with me, beloved. Our Father, we thank you that you are our Savior. That you sent your Son for us and the work is done. It is finished. And therefore, you've called us to be light in this world. Help us tonight by your Spirit to receive your word with meekness and brokenness for it and it alone is able to save our souls. We ask and pray these things in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. Amen. So picking it up here in chapter 2 verse 12, Therefore, my beloved, as you have always obeyed, not as in my presence only, but now much more in my absence, Work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. For it is God who works in you both to will and to do for his good pleasure. Therefore, always have to know what came before that when we see that word. Therefore, he says, let your posture towards your salvation, the perspective of your heart, and what is required of you as God's servants, be one of fear and trembling. Since the one who saved you and calls you his own, we learn in verses 9 through 11, is the Lord Jesus Christ himself. For, he says, it is God who works in you both to will and to do for his good pleasure in verse 13. Right? 
the one that has saved us, that is now our Lord, this is the one God has given the name Lord of all. We work as Christians because God is already at work. His work is the reason and the cause of our work. So we're not doing anything for ourselves, but as a result of what He is doing in us for His good pleasure, according to His will, not ours. This is so vital of a distinction to make. Since we now know God is at work in us for His good pleasure, we are going to have to align ourselves with the intent of that operation in us. We must be surrendered to His desire for us, which rarely, if ever, will align with the desires we have for ourselves, for our pleasure in these mortal bodies, according to our will. This verse is not telling us to gain our salvation by works or to work for our salvation, but to work out effectively in our own individual lives the fact that we've already, we've actually been granted salvation for free without works, purely by grace from God. That gracious salvation has implications for the rest of our lives. Remember in chapter 1, verse 6, God promised that He will complete what He began in us. He has been at work in us, conforming us to the image of the selfless Christ of chapter 2. And He will be until we're dead or until He returns. God will complete it by working in us to work it out. That is to bring it to bear on our lives here. And in the immediate context, because we can make this very general, just, you know, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. You're, you're called to, um, you know, for the, the, the implications of salvation to be in your lives, and that's true. But here, the immediate context has to do primarily, when you talk about working out your own salvation with fear and trembling, with how we treat one another in the church. That's not where we really think working out our salvation is going to be played out. Somehow, we think that has more to do with how we live out there and where we don't go and the words we don't use and the things we're against, right? The ability to walk in unity, engaged in the same conflict Paul was engaged in for the faith of the gospel is such a major part of our new identity in Christ. But it's so foreign to our flesh to die to the demands of self and our own inherent selfishness that we need God at work in us resulting in our own willing engagement in the work. So let us approach these new lives in Christ, he's saying, with fear and trembling, knowing that what we're commanded to do is so foreign to us that it requires God Himself to be at work in us by His saving grace for it to be accomplished at all. We should take this to mean that what we're called to do is not inherently in us. It doesn't come naturally to us. Therefore, we live now at God's good pleasure, not at our own. Verse 14. So here's where he goes with that. Working out your own salvation with fear and trembling for it is God who is working you both to will and do for his good pleasure. All right. Tell me what mountains you want me to move. Do all things without complaining and disputing. One of the most blatantly, proudly, consistently disobeyed and ignored verses in the entire Bible. Do all things 
without complaining and disputing. How do you figure we justify complaining and disputing all the time? Like, what do we have to ignore? Who do we have to ignore to push, to complain, right? Do all things without complaining and disputing that you may become blameless and harmless. That's something the people of God are supposed to be. Harmless. Children of God without fault. In the midst of a crooked and perverse generation among whom you shine as lights in the world. Holding fast the word of life. So that I, Paul, may rejoice in the day of Christ. That I have not run in vain or labored in vain. The call to work out our own salvation with fear and trembling is not some general admonition. It's tied directly to our calling, the command in Philippians to walk in unity. Remember chapter 1, chapter 2, the beginning. And engage in the conflict for the faith of the gospel. It deals specifically with that aspect of our salvation. In other words, this is a high calling. It's, it, our flesh does not want this. We do not naturally adapt ourselves to this. God is in us working, working against us to make us like this. Learning to walk in light of the salvation we've been given means learning to live and act as a person without complaining and disputing about things. We are not to be such people. Notice that it is through this in particular, as it relates to our obedience to these commands in verse 15, that we will become blameless and harmless children of God without fault in the midst of a crooked and perverse generation. Complaining and disputing, murmuring, arguing are so common to the unsaved world that if you don't live like that and do that and aren't characterized by that, you will look especially, specifically like the children of God. So, Christians are not people that get their way by complaining and arguing and murmuring. We aren't that. We aren't that. And notice this is a statement of how things are, not how they're supposed to be. We shine as lights in the world, period. They can see us. They are watching. We shine some kind of light, beloved. It's unavoidable. We do contribute in some way to how the world sees us and talks about us. It's not a small thing, for example, that there are literally memes. How many of you know what a meme is? Okay. Two, three, a late four. Memes, you know, like the, the pictures on the internet with like words on them, they're meant to be funny or sarcastic, gifts, all these types of things, GIF, you know, capital GIF. There are literally memes and gifts and social media groups and discussions about how rotten Christians act at restaurants, particularly on Sunday afternoon. This is pervasive, like I'm not making this up. Okay, you, you'll, you'll see a video somebody posts or a GIF on a moving picture on the internet of, of people jumping up and clapping their hands and singing in church and their hands lifted high and their eyes closed in tears. And it'll say on the bottom, 
uh, Christians 10 minutes before they berate a server at a restaurant on a Sunday afternoon. Yeah. We do contribute to how the world sees us. And it's shameful. But we take pride in being able to hit the home runs on morality. We're against homosexuality. And it's a sin, absolutely. Like there's no, that's not wrong to believe that that's wrong. We, we, we hit the home runs on, uh, you know, the, the new gender ideology, whatever that is, and all these, you know, abortion. And right, we should be against abortion, absolutely, and all these things. But nobody's worrying about this. Like the everyday actual lives we live, the people that see us and hear us. And listen, there are, people know that you act like that, that we act like that. They know that. People see it and they hear it. And to them, they're like, isn't that off since you all just came from church or since you're a Christian or since... And we, we, just, we just blow right over it. Rudeness that leads to complaining or comes out as complaining and murmuring and disputing. Beloved, that is unbecoming the children of God. You'll have to work that out in yourself if you want to call yourself a good Christian. Right? Taking on the name of Christ turns us on as lights to the watching world. Our light should make it clear that there's something completely different about us and it's not just in the way we live. And in the things we're against because they're sin and they are. But in the way we live towards one another in unity, the way we talk to people, the way we treat other people. And it's, you know how quickly in a church people will turn their backs on one another? Just stop caring about each other as, as individual people because they, you, you did or said something they don't like? But that's the world. What's the difference? We ought to be finding it increasingly less important that we are recognized and served and increasingly more important that we serve and give rather than demand and take and expect. The crookedness and perversion of the world here is talking about its complaining and arguing nature. That's the mark of the world that we're, that people act like that. It's, it's not the mark of the church. It's not supposed to be. And that's important because we shine as lights in the world as the church. The world has nothing to lean on but itself. So of course it's angry. Of course the smallest slight is like a stab in the heart because what else do we have but the moment, the day. The world has no choice but to get what it wants by force, by coercion, by rudeness, harshness. So the world's techniques match the world's situation. Murmuring, complaining, demanding. Conversely, you and I, we hold fast to the word of life. In verse 16, you and I do have something to lean on, something that should make us different. And since, and it, it will, since God is at work in us, 1, 6, 2, 13, right? In 
Philippians. We have the word of life. We have the gospel that makes us hopeful people rather than complaining people. How could complaining be such a big deal? Complaining and murmuring really does mark us out to look like the world. Who would have thought, again, I mean, it's just of all the issues you could go to, who would have thought that complaining and arguing, griping and disputing would be such a big deal that it will literally kill our unity, snuff out our light, and rob us of our ability to evangelize. But that's what the Bible says. That's the context of you shine as lights in the world. Stop complaining. Stop murmuring. Stop griping. How do Christians who are saved by grace when they're sinners think, like how do we think that it should go our way and we should get what we want and we have these expectations that we live by and hold over other people? And it's just, how does that happen, Paul is saying. There's, a, there's, there's something wrong in the wiring, Paul is saying. Do we not remember Israel in the wilderness? Cursed by God for grumbling. I mean, I mean, oh man, quail again. Quail every day. Like really we're supposed to eat every single day the same thing. You know, we, we, we do that today. We, we do it in our lives, different things. We do it in church. Oh man, the, the gospel again. We hear a sermon on the Sufficiency of Jesus for us again. God, don't you have something else for us, preacher? Don't you have something else for us? That, what, that is complaining. There, there, there's no qualification here. You can complain, though, when... No, you can't. You can't. When am I allowed to complain? First of all, why are you asking? And secondly, never. Never. Like, it's a sin every time we do it. Who repents of that sin? Who recognizes that that's a sin? God believes that what he's done for us in Christ is so great that we don't need to be like that anymore. Ever at all. Interesting. I've never preached through Philippians before. Because I don't, I don't ever remember doing it. I didn't realize how Paul is always taking this amazingly, because it's Paul, back to himself. In some measure, right? It's not, it's not about him. That's not how he's writing. But he always talks about the implications of what he's commanding for him personally. Just, that's there. Like, I'm, I'm, that's just surprising to me. Once again, Paul is exhorting them in verse 16 for his sake also, that he might benefit from their obedience to this. So, whether or not they will put in the spiritual effort to make these changes will go a very long way in determining whether Paul the Apostle felt like he had run in vain or labored in vain. Right? We're not going to be able to get away with being a complaining, grumbling people for very long in the church. God has tied us together too tightly for that. To do so, to say, no, that, that's how we're going to be, then we have to be willing to take the responsibility for the exasperation of our ministers and how carnality robs them of joy. Right? There's plenty that preachers can do to hurt people in a church. No question. No question. It also works the other way. And that's what Paul is doing in this text. Their refusal to do this in Philippi 
right? Their refusal to stop complaining and grumbling about everything will make Paul feel like he's wasted his time and worked among them for nothing. That's what the Bible says. Remember Hebrews 13, 17. Please remember it. Obey your leaders and submit to them, for they are keeping watch over your souls. Let them do this with joy and not with groaning, for that would be of no advantage to you. Verse 17, yes, and if I am being poured out as a drink offering on the sacrifice and service of your faith, I am glad and rejoice with you all. For the same reason, you also be glad and rejoice with me. The fact is that Paul is being poured out as a drink offering on the sacrifice and service of their faith. Paul's service of the Philippians, like a minister's service of the congregation, is an offering to God that from the minister's minister's perspective relies on the sacrifice and service of his people's faith in order to believe his ministry has not been poured out in vain. In verse 18, this type of service to them is precisely why they should also be glad and rejoicing rather than what? Complaining and disputing. You see, they're set right against each other in the text. Beloved, again, I didn't write this. All right, and I'm not preaching Philippians because it was in there. This In studying and getting ready for this, it surprised me this time. I didn't realize Paul does this so much. We really are this connected. Like it's, it's, listen, it's a bummer that you got your wagon hitched to me. All right? It is. I'm not up here telling you why won't, just, I'm so great. Why won't you follow me? No. No, I've never said that. Ever. I never would say that. It'd take you about 10 minutes to know I'm lying if it took that long. We really are this connected, beloved. Like we can't live without helping or destroying each other. It's God's will. It's His design. We, we, we can't just push for our own way all the time. Either one of us. Work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. You personally. You get it worked out. Me, get it worked out. Because we're called to something. And we can't just talk however we want. Any of us might try to get our way at the expense of the church's unity or at the expense of the pastor's pleading with us to humble ourselves, but that won't come without it destroying our own joy. Verse 19, But I trust in the Lord Jesus to send Timothy to you shortly, that I also may be encouraged when I know your state, for I have no one like-minded who will sincerely care for your state. For all seek their own, not the things which are of Christ Jesus. But you know his proven character, that as a son with his father, he served with me in the gospel. Therefore, I hope to send him at once, as soon as I see how it goes with me. But I trust in the Lord that I myself shall also come shortly. So Paul lets them know he intends to send Timothy to minister to them. Since he wants to hear a good report about them, he's going to send the guy that's most likely to be helpful in Philippi. Timothy thinks just like Paul does. That's the kind of minister they need in Philippi. So he hopes to send him quickly. Timothy will sincerely care for them in their situation and their need. He will shepherd them well. Other kinds of ministers, which Paul talked about in 115 through 18, 
they seek their own in their ministry to others. Those, and, and these are the kinds of teachers and ministers, apparently, that the Philippians wanted to have. They, they, they wanted that. I think if you go back through chapter 1, verses 12 through 18, Paul is making a case there for a certain kind of minister they should desire. While they're desiring, we all desire by nature, better, shinier, more put together, right? But as their minister in the gospel that knows them and prays for them passionately, he knows that's not what you need there. Timothy and Paul seek the things which are of Christ Jesus, which includes calling people away from selfishness and conflict and laziness for the sake of the faith of the gospel. Calling them away from themselves. Timothy has proven in his past ministry to them already that he's, he's not like that. Timothy doesn't come with ulterior motives for preaching the gospel. There's no pretense there. There's no malice or selfishness there. He's been faithful and served Paul like he was his own son. That kind of love and devotion and unity, that stirs Paul to believe that Timothy is the minister they need since he can't go himself, but believes that he will soon, or at least hopes that he will soon. And in verse 25, Yet I considered it necessary to send to you Epaphroditus, my brother, fellow worker, and fellow soldier, but your messenger and the one who ministered to my need, since he was longing for you all and was distressed because you had heard that he was sick. He's distressed that you would be worried that he's sick, this Epaphroditus. That's a ministry. For indeed, he was sick almost unto death, but God had mercy on him. And not only on him, but on me also, lest I should have sorrow upon sorrow. Therefore, I sent him the more eagerly, that when you see him again, you may rejoice, and I may be less sorrowful. Receive him, therefore, in the Lord with all gladness, and hold such men in esteem, because for the work of Christ he came close to death, not regarding his life, to supply what was lacking in your service toward me. So there the, the, the right at the outset of that little section there, you hear Paul start to pick back up these images that are so important to the Philippians. My my brother, my fellow worker. These are Roman Empire words. Fellow worker, good citizen, right? But Epaphroditus is a good citizen of heaven. And fellow soldier. That's who Epaphroditus is to Paul. That's the brotherhood of ministry. Camaraderie which others normally don't understand, right? And that's okay. We don't understand each other's careers and, and, and all the things that go along with it. And he's talking about the brotherhood of ministry here. Paul has no problem attaching those images, brother, fellow worker, fellow soldier, to ministers of the gospel, which I, I wouldn't be in a hurry to do, Right? After all, soldiers in the conflict for the faith of the gospel, they're fighting a war much more important than the Roman soldiers are. Paul's not alone. That's who he is to Paul. But to them, Epaphroditus is what they need. They need a messenger to bring them the truth of God's word in the gospel. That's what they need right now more than anything. So he's already sent Epaphroditus for that. Ministers are meant to bring news from heaven to the congregation. Paul had already sent Epaphroditus, another fellow laborer he holds in high esteem. He personally ached, Epaphroditus did, to get to the believers in Philippi for the sake of the ministry. The fact that he was sent 
as a result of having been healed from an affliction. So when they see him, they'll rejoice. It will give them more occasion or another occasion to praise God even more. In verses 29 and 30, Paul wants them to be a people who receive ministers sent for their good and edification with all gladness and to hold such men in high esteem, which biblically means submit to them and respect them, listen to them, not because they, they like, like are a capital P pastor, minister, like just the personality or the office. No, 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 no. Paul is saying these men, like Timothy and Epaphroditus, they love you. They're willing to risk their own health to come to you and preach the gospel to you. And if that's what a person is willing to do, then esteem that minister. He's there for your good. All in the context of stop complaining and murmuring, right? The Philippians were a difficult congregation, apparently. Paul sent these men as ministers, not because of their names or even their titles, but because it was their life. Men like Timothy and Epaphroditus to serve the Philippian Christians for the sake of Christ. So it's a matter of honoring Christ to honor ministers since he is the one who calls, equips, and sends them to help us and serve us. Of course, it all sounds very self-serving for me to say those things. But, I mean, the text is what it is. We'll, We'll get past this in a moment. I don't want you hearing this based on how you think about me. Sometimes I will be like this. Most of the time I will not. Right? So this isn't really about about that. Just don't forget it because of how you might think about me is what I'm saying. Don't miss this text because you're not thrilled with me. Right? Men like Epaphroditus are willing to serve when they are sick and in need themselves to supply what is needed among God's people. So the service that Paul could not render in his situation since he was in prison. So, beloved, we shine as lights in the world, full stop. Right now, we're shining as a light in the world because we call ourselves Christian. Right? Our light is on to Moundsville. What light are we shining? What does our light say? What does it illuminate? What do you figure Moundsville believes this church is all about? The Bible teaches us that we can say and think what we want about how great we are in a community. And we can make a lot of assumptions. The Bible says that if we aren't unified by this one conflict, the first two chapters of Philippians, Paul's conflict, Jesus' conflict, the true church's conflict since the first century, the faith of the gospel, If we aren't willing to die to ourselves, be unified around that and for its sake, our light is bad. Period. It isn't illuminating properly. For this, each one of us must examine ourselves and repent. We must work out our own salvation with fear and trembling. Our own salvation with fear and trembling. In verse 12, he 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 is saying, you realize what God has done for you. And you work out how that ought to affect and be displayed in your life. Every individual believer is commanded to do this. Paul is saying that to each one of them individually. Each of us is responsible for this. Each of us can contribute to unity. Each of us can hinder unity. So our stuff, personal stuff, 
our selfish nonsense and refusal to walk in humility and repentance, ours, each one of us, can kill a church or give it life. So, whatever it is standing in the way of unity and humility and brokenness for the sake of the gospel, work it out. This is what Paul is saying. Get your stuff together. There's a gospel to proclaim. Together in unity. So when we start looking inside, beloved, we aren't supposed to affirm what we see there. We ought to, by default, believe that the more we want something and have to have it, the less we will honor Christ and contribute to the unity of His body. So let each of us learn to deny ourselves and recognize that we are, even me, meaning for all of us to say, even me, so far off from what God desires us to be that He's still at work in us to change it after all this time that we've known Him and He's known us. The Bible is living. He, he, he has not stopped working in us for His will and His good pleasure. That hasn't stopped. So God doesn't think we're done yet. We haven't arrived yet. None of us. And we never will as long as the Word stands. Our salvation is fixed and secure Praise God in Christ. But how it's working itself out in our lives, God is always going to be at work for that. Because if He were to take His hands off, we turn right back around to ourselves. Instantaneously. He calls us to live in recognition of our salvation. Every single one of us has stuff to work on and get worked out in the body of Christ. Let me ask each of you something. Don't answer out loud. I just want you to hear it as a question to you. What would it benefit your brothers and sisters that you've been in this church with for some of you more than 50 years, maybe your whole lives? What do you think it would benefit the whole church if your brothers and sisters saw you deciding to take this call to stop complaining and murmuring and griping seriously. How long has it been since your brothers and sisters have seen something in you change? Or have seen you break as you work out your own salvation with fear and trembling? Or are we just on cruise control, doing our own thing, living our own lives, Beloved, we each must die to ourselves. Like, that isn't always about, okay, I'm going to sell everything I have and move to Indonesia or something and be a missionary. That's, oh, it includes that. And like I always say, if I make that example, if that's what you decide to do, praise God. He's called you to that. Praise God. I'm not downplaying. I'm saying normally we don't, that's not where we have to deny ourselves. We have to deny ourselves when we see something we don't like by keeping our mouths shut because complaining is sin. Right? Not, not everything needs to be addressed. Right? Not everything has to go my way. It just doesn't. The, 
God isn't at work in us to create something for others to applaud, but to conform us to the image of Christ. And if we're alive, He's still doing it. It doesn't matter how old you are. It doesn't matter. If you're not in the ground and your soul is not in heaven, God is at work in you to will and to do for His good pleasure. So if we see a simple, straightforward command, no complaining, no disputing, and we refuse to obey it, what is happening inside? The Christ, the image of Christ that God is conforming us to didn't use His divinity to gain the applause of others. That's not what He did. It's precisely because the gospel that saves is so finished for us tonight. It's precisely because the work of the gospel is so complete in us and sufficient for us. It's because our ticket is punched that we ought to work this out in ourselves. This beautiful, free, and gracious thing God has done. And maybe you feel like God has passed you by and time has passed you by. So what difference does it make? Beloved, never discount the beauty and the worth of just being kind and helpful. God is honored in the simplest tasks. When people do it with joy and gladness and gratitude, He is so honored by these things. You, you may glorify God with what you are able to do. Like you're not, nobody in here is second rate. Like because I can't be a preacher, I can't. It, being a preacher is overrated. Alright? It's overrated. Like, it, it's nothing to brag about. Like being, you know, you, you don't have to hit these home runs. Beloved, get on base. It will help the team. Right? Just, just, just listen to the word. Just listen to the word. God has done something in us for free. It's beautiful. It's gracious. It's sufficient. So believe in. Repent of your sinfulness. And listen, let people see it. If you are working things out, let people see it. Not because you're, you're, you're you know, shining your good works before others that you might be glorified. It's because you're shining already. So if you're going to shine, shine some repentance. Shine some, okay, I'm, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to take this seriously. I, wanna, I don't want to be like this. Let people see that. Let them see you change. That you, you, you aren't the griping, complaining, angry, upset, constantly bothered, everything's wrong person. You know, I, I need to hear that. I, I hear all the time how my face just doesn't communicate well. You know, my, my, I, people are always saying to me, hey, what's wrong? Not, nothing. Then why do you look like that? No, I get, my wife tells me that all the time. <laughs> like, what's, what's wrong? Nothing. Well, tell your face, right? Beloved, listen, if we confess our sins, He is faithful and just to forgive us of our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. That's working it out. Right? That, that we, we aren't doing that. We aren't completing the work of forgiveness for ourselves. We're acknowledging that we need what God has given us when we do this. It just it, it would change so much. God is gracious, beloved. God forgives us for these things. 
And He is relentless. Where we fail. The, the, the harder you try to run from God when you're His child, the faster He is on your trail. So you might as well just surrender. He's going to catch you. He is Lord over us. And He loves us so He would not leave us in the difficulties we bring on ourselves because of our flesh. 